Okay, welcome back. Thank you for coming. I hope you are well. Uh, today, we're going to read the... I'm going to read, or we together, read part eight in the presentation of the book Nityananda in Divine Presence. Uh, we're in the second half of the book. We're in... We're, we're going to start with the chapter called The Old Ashram Part 2. For some reason, Part 2 comes after Part 3. Um, and the dates <laughs> switch around a little bit here. Uh, and so today, uh, presumably, I'll be reading Old Ashram Part 2, 1950 to 1956, so close to the end. Then the new ashram at Kailas, which I don't know if that's so far away from the old in Ganeshpuri, also 56 to 61. Then, probably next week, um, getting close to the end of the book, a second chapter about new ashram at Kailas with a different date, not, not 56 to 61, but 1950 to 61. So, in any case, we're talking about um, the last... 10 years or so of Nichiren, 10, 15 years of Nichirananda's life, um, late 40s, early 50s, up to 61 when he passed or uh, had his uh, unbinding from the remainder of the body. And the movement, the, the stories of Ganeshpuri, which was where he found an ashram or settled, uh, coming from the south previously. Then um, Ganeshpuri uh, opening a new ashram, so-called at Kailas. So today, old ashram part two, 1950 to 56, still this period. And um, last time, towards the end, uh, only real specialists would have picked this up. But we're talking about um, some swamis or uh, devotees and. Um, even some accomplished teachers from a different tradition coming to check him out or get help. Um, those of the Shankar Shankar lineage. That's uh, that's um, uh, Adi Shankar Shankara was um, most famous, important yogi, scholar, formulator of Advaita Vedanta. Uh, about a thousand years ago. I don't know the dates. I don't know everything. Maybe uh, 12th century, 11th century. Anybody. Uh, Adi, A-D-I, Adi Shankara. Uh, monks and uh, swamis and some teachers from that lineage visiting uh, Ganeshpuri and connecting with Nityananda. We'll see more of that today. <clears throat> and so the last paragraph from the previous talk in the chapter about the old ashram ended with a year or two later the Shankaracharya meaning Acharya or teacher of the Shankara lineage who had initiated this other monk named Shankar Tirth Shankar they, they commonly have the same name as their uh, as the founder of the lineage <clears throat> you know meaning he's and and these are sort of ordination names um, common in Buddhism too. Um, 
that are part of the depersonalization process, hopefully balanced depersonalization process, associated with uh, moving to higher levels of the spiritual path and getting beyond uh, what is commonly called ego or egotism, or the sense of a solid, separate self. So, another Shankar, the Shankaracharya, who's an elder, who had initiated this younger Shankar into his particular orders of monks, was camped at Banaganga, I think Bana, nearby the Ganges. Then this other younger monk who went to Nichinanda and had this the run-in with the cobras, the dreams of attacking cobras, telling him to leave as part of his own uh, deep healing, perhaps, actually as a uh, catharsis manifestation um, of the blockages that had kept him from inner peace for many years. Uh, after he settled down and uh, became well, uh, his initiator, his preceptor or, or ordination teacher called him back. <clears throat> so it goes on, when he sent word for that sannyasi Shankar Tir to report for final initiation, meaning you did your probation, now come back and uh, you'll be a formal um, accepted member of the order. Shankar Tir asked Nityananda if he should go. Nityananda was, he was told by Nityananda that it was unnecessary, so he informed the Shankaracharya that he would not come, and that was the end of that. <clears throat> and that's just an interesting story because there are other cases where um, devotees approached Nityananda. Let's say there was the story of those who came from. Uh, Satcha Sai Baba, the uh, maybe it's um, Sai Baba of Shirdi, not the Afro-headed Sai Baba, the one before, and they were told go back to the old man, <laughs> the old man Sai Baba of Shirdi, uh, who was a very seemed to be a completed fellow, different than the uh, the one today with the orange robe making magic tricks and um, with a lot of scandal around. Uh, they were told to go back to him, Sai Baba of Shirdi, I think, and they did. And here he's being told, no, you don't need to go back, uh, because I guess Nityananda determined that he found something, and so go back to the original teacher or not depends on the quality of the original teacher and the degree of work one's done uh, apart from the original teacher. And so that then also relates to sources of information that that may be useful to us for the rest of our lives and sources that we can safely mm, uh, depart from or put away or never revisit because we've gotten what we could or can from them and gone beyond them. And so there's no more juice in the lemon. It's okay to put the lemon rind back on the ground or throw it away or let nature redigest it. So uh, things change. So today we'll start with the old ashram part two, 1950-1956, and we'll see more of uh, an approach, the approach of some members of that Shankar order, order, and their relation to Nityananda. So it starts. Another Shankaracharya visited Ganesh Puri in the mid fifties. 
Details of his visit reached Captain Hatengi in an unusual way. In fact, it was in 1977, at a Hari Kata, which is a scriptural story told in song and narrative, that he, hold the, that he heard the story. <clears throat> so it's a sort of a ceremony associated with a accounting or rereading of um, a famous religious uh, story or um, epic tale. The Shankaracharya of Puri was spending his Chaturma in Bombay. Traditionally, a Chaturma was the four months of monsoon during which a wandering sadhu would stay in one place. But these days it referred to a period of special study. At the end of this at the end of his time there, he visited a Datatreya shrine at Vakola, where this is again the Shankaracharya, who's a higher level teacher in that lineage, where he expressed a desire to visit the Vajrashwari temple. Having just written a book on Shakti, meaning the serpent power, the Kundalini intelligent energy coming from root to crown, he wanted to visit the shrine of the goddess before it was published. Goddess Vajrashwari, which has a special relationship to Shakti, Shiva Shakti union and all that. The then young Harikata performer, meaning who was supposed to tell the scriptural story, was hired to drive two men, the elderly Shankaracharya and a Shastri, uh, learned in the scriptures, to Vajrashwari. The old Swami was not very strong and had to be helped up the steps leading to the shrine, Vajrashwari shrine near Nichinanda. Afterward, the Shankaracharya suddenly uttered a desire to see Nichinanda, and the three companions found themselves unexpectedly en route to Ganeshpuri. When they arrived, the master was resting on his narrow bench with a few people seated before him. The three new visitors quietly joined the others. Silence reigned. After some time, the scholar stood up, because a lot of the... You've got a Shastri, learned in the scriptures, and then an elderly Shankaracharya, who was a, a leader, one of the leaders, or there are many levels of many leaders in the, that order, um, but he's certainly at a higher level. So you've got him and his scholar and the others visiting Nityananda um, for some reason. And so after this time of the silence, the scholar stood up and announced who they were. He said that the Shankaracharya had written a book on Shakti and that they had come for Nityananda's blessing. No one else spoke and the silence continued. At some point the master raised his head and nodded to an attending devotee who left and quickly reappeared with a mysteriously prepared tray of fresh flowers, fruit, and coconuts. The attendant respectfully placed the tray before the Shankaracharya and withdrew. Although it was clear that Nityananda had been expecting the holy man, meaning it was prepared in advance, he still did not speak. Several minutes passed before the scholar again stood up this time to say that what was transpiring in silence was new to him. He nevertheless recognized that the flowers and fruit represented Nichinanda's blessing and announced that his party would take its leave. Bowing deeply, the three visitors left the silent ashram. So that's a sort of blessing in silence, probably to counteract 
the um, excessive mental activity of the scholar uh, or addresser in relation to that. Then, in 1954, G.L. Rao was staying with Shankar Tirt, that was from the earlier story, in the Nat Temple opposite the Vajreshwari Temple. One afternoon, Godavarimata, Godari, it's probably uh, Godavarimata, Godarvarimata, Mata is a common mother, uh, Godarvarimata, a holy woman from Sakuri, drove up to the temple and asked whether she could be taken to Ganeshpuri. Shankar Tirt asked Rao to accompany her. There's all these different people and names here. They found Nichinanda resting in his room with his feet extended onto the cement platform. Rao announced the arrival of the visitor, meaning that woman, holy, meaning a, a saintly female sadhu, who sat down, she sat down near his feet, and Nichinanda grunted in acknowledgement. <laughs> Wishing to be hospitable, Rao asked whether he could bring Godavarimata something to drink, and Nichinanda said yes. While Rao was away, the master came out of his room and sat on the platform. Godavari Matta stayed for two days, later saying that Nichinanda had given her the darshan of her guru. She had originally come to ask Nichinanda to grace a Vedic ceremony in Bombay with his physical presence. He refused, saying he would observe the ritual from Ganeshpuri, but she continued to press her invitation. When he finally, when finally he replied that, quote, one has to come only if one is not there already, she stopped asking. Later, it was reported that on the final day of the Yajna, the holy woman was granted the darshan of Nichinanda. So these are all very specialized um, stories or, or um, dynamics of um, sectarian practice and belief and um, Nichinanda interacting with individuals associated with other traditions and lineages who come to him quite full um, <laughs> from their lineage. Uh, full of what? Um, full of teaching, full of belief, full of uh, perhaps some dogma or dogmatic rigid belief as well or wrong view. Uh, not that all their view is wrong view, or nor their practice is harmful, nor their lineage is unuseful or unnecessary or unhelpful, but you've got people coming here asking him for, th for this and that. And <clears throat> a lot of people um, don't know the difference between asking and, and giving. And uh, they think they're giving while they're demanding. Some people, some people. Some people, their way of giving is a demanding. They want help and act demandingly. And it's very unpleasant, actually, when people <laughs> presume to demand and expect and assume that the one they're asking, in fact, really um, should doesn't necessarily need to do everything they want. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of pride in a lot of people who have a lot of training and practice and study. 
and um, Pride is one of the last places to go anyway, meaning one of the last uh, obstructions of mine to go at the towards the end of the path. But you've got people from the Shankar lineage, uh, this woman uh, coming, uh, why she's called a holy woman, I don't know. Uh, she's probably related to the Shankar lineage because she's asked uh, or she's getting connected here with Shankar Tirt of that lineage. And she basically is saying, um, do this for me. So the first guys come and say, give me your blessing. Why? <laughs> Why should he give you, their give you his blessing? Why? Because that's his job. He's a holy man. Ah, oh, okay. And so that's their perspective. You're a spiritual teacher. You're a holy man. You're a guru. Give me, give me your blessing. Or... Uh, come to uh, come to the Vedic ceremony and uh, give us the darshan give give us uh, your presence and your time because that's your job you're a holy man, you're a teacher, you're a helper come help me <laughs> some people really come that way it's very uh, unpleasant really and so, uh, he gave the first fellows uh, flowers, fruit, and coconuts. That's the blessing, but he didn't talk because they were too full of talk already, perhaps. And then for her, the holy woman, you see the, the phrase, holy woman from Sakuri, Sakuri, that's from M.U. Hatengi, who's a good guy. How holy is she? I don't know. I don't know. What makes holy? It's not the robe. It's not the beliefs. It's really the heart, the mind, the, the behavior in terms of morality and service and compassion and uh, harmlessness and self-offering. seems to me it's uh, the opposite. It's selflessness, the degree of true selflessness, which is a great, uh, <laughs> it's a very high standard. So uh, Nichinanda grunted and... Um, when she pushed to say, uh, come because it's, you're a guru and uh, give us your, the blessing of your presence because it's your job and I demand it. <laughs> and I say you should. He said, one has to come only if one's not there already. And she couldn't top that and uh, that was that. And so uh, he uh, had a different approach to each person and a certain approach to those um, who had some um, what appear what could be called conceit I don't know I mean I don't really, you know I don't know where they were really coming from but it could be well could well be that they came with some conceit and uh, a congested mind, some with a congested mind of agdeas or dogma, some with conceit and a presumptive, presumptive attitude. Um, and um, he didn't give them just what they wanted, but he gave them what he understood they needed. Going on, 1954, so you see things are getting kind of... It's, it's a real hassle for somebody like him to deal with all of these distorted, to deal with significantly distorted religious people. It's, it's, it's tiring. Uh, 1954, 
Sita Rama Shenoy suffered a heart attack in Vajraswari and died. And that was one of the people who submitted stories to uh, Captain Hatengi. Grief-stricken and inconsolable, his wife was determined to take the body to Ganeshpuri. Accordingly, she hired a car, had the body placed in it, and proceeded toward the ashram. A quarter mile away, the car stalled and would not start up again. At this point, the driver announced that he would neither repair the car in the dark nor help carry the body the remaining distance. Undeterred, the widow left the body with the driver and set off for the ashram on foot. When she was still some 200 yards from the gate, she heard Nichinanda shouting, Go back and perform the last rites. She pleaded with him, but was ordered away. So obviously Nichinanda already knew that her husband had died. The devotee Rao was present that evening and asked Nichinanda why he had not received or revived, revived her husband as he had done some years earlier. The master responded that their children had been young then and needed a father, and in compassion the divine force worked that way. However, present conditions were different. His interference, he said, would cause people to stop going to Chandanwadi, Bombay's crematorium, and come to Ganeshpuri instead. And so he's explaining that uh, uh, usage of divine force. Divine force is intelligent energy. It's love light, light love, or um, logoic, uh, logoic force. Lo, you know, divine force equals logoic um, light, which is light love which is intelligent energy from the raw material. Those are other terms. Same as prana, or chi, or ki. It's um, that which the the vibration or energy that is the, the basis of the seven rays frequencies of light, of colored light. And so it is uh, wielding it uh, certainly for an uh, enlightened being or one on the positive path must um, must be for the for the good, and um, it's sort of like the in the raw material they can't talk extensively about the activities of Orion or human history <clears throat> or uh, details of negative uh, plots and plans uh, because it's below their vibratory level. Likewise. Um, Nichinanda couldn't do, wouldn't do magical action uh, like bringing uh, somebody back to life whose heart had stopped when it was somehow out of harmony with what's best and previously he had done it in, in compassion or in consideration to the fact that that family had young children later they grow and then he had the sense that he knew, I guess, that then people would talk. And what they would hear is Nityananda of Ganeshpuri uh, brought Mr. Rao back to life. Uh, let's bring all our bodies here. And that well could have happened. So, going on. Nityananda often tested a devotee's medal, M-E-T-T-L-E, 
as in the instance of a Brahmin devotee who came weekly to read the scriptures aloud in the master's presence. After several visits, he asked to be cured of his tubercular condition and constant cough. Nichinanda agreed and told him to eat a small frog fried in ghee every day. Aha, uh-huh, see, so he was testing. A strict vegetarian, the Brahmin was horrified. But, having asked for Nichinanda's help, he dutifully complied with the instructions. Soon his lungs improved, and he developed a taste for frogs in the bargain, meaning he came to like ghee-fried frogs, like stir-fried, stir-fried frog in ghee. Mm. The master never, and, and I guess you can say that it's a test of faith and a test that uh, could you go beyond your belief? Can you go beyond the belief that you hold or you presume is an absolute truth? An absolute truth being um, all, uh, always and forever to be obeyed, in this case, as it's a, a truth regarding um, behavior, being vegetarian. It's always and ever the best, most spiritual way to be vegetarian, which is a belief, which many Hindus and Westerners now believe. Uh, And Nishinanda was testing to see if um, he would hold that or he could realize that that it's not always the case (laughs) and that um, uh, beliefs are relative and um, not absolute. And so he did trust and have faith in Nityananda, and he got better. Going on, the master never took credit for the endless instances of physical healing or of healing that occurred around him. In fact, he often directed devotees to rely on their own traditional medical physicians. When pressed, he attributed everything to the divine force. He would say of himself, This one had no desire to do good deeds, Everything that happens does so through the will of God. And so, beyond, the crystallized healer has no will, said Ra. Similar to this, it's not my will, it's uh, thine, or divine will, or logoic will. Uh, And that he had no personal stake in that, which is interesting. Nishinanda was tolerant of his devotee's humanness, his actions indicated that one's heart was free to turn to God only after the basic human needs were fulfilled. He made no demands, issued no commandments, and frequently concerned himself with their worldly comfort. In return, all he asked was that followers be prepared to receive that which he offered in such abundance. Just receive. (laughs) Many people can't do that. This is a story of an attorney from the distant state of Kerala who regularly visited Ganesh Puri on weekends. As the years passed, however, the devotee felt keenly the loneliness of his unmarried state and finally announced he wanted a wife. Listening, Nichinanda pointed to the surrounding throng of people (laughs) sitting in the room as they always are and said, take one from here. (laughs) The prospective bridegroom instantly froze, concerned that his mention of a private problem had triggered a casual response. He didn't know Nichinanda. He sort of thought Nichinanda was taking it lightly. 
Bewildered, he sat as the people around him slowly dispersed until only one man remained, likewise from Kerala. Eyeing the attorney, he told Nichinanda that he and his wife were having difficulty arranging a suitable match for their daughter. Nichinanda pointed to his devotee. How about that? Everything seemed settled until their family sent the potential couple's horoscopes to a group of astrologers who unanimously pronounced the match unsuitable. When informed of this, Nichinanda, without a glance at the offending charts, pointed out that a certain aspect nullified the negative signs correctly discerned by the astrologers. When this information was relayed to Kerala, the astrologers agreed, amazed at their failure to notice this vital detail, and the couple married. <laughs> so not only uh, does Nichinanda know, or is he part of the chain of events, the stream of events, by which... Uh, a devotee who happens to want a wife happens to be the only one standing in next to Nichinanda when the audience empties and the only one remaining happens to be the one who wishes to have his daughter married. Not only that, but he also clearly knows the detail of their joint horoscope chart, their combined chart, uh, so much so that he recognized he could see a particular configuration or aspecting that nullifies all the negative uh, configurations or aspects which had been accurately seen by the astrologers. Uh, <laughs> he can find that in the chart without looking at the chart, without knowing, without knowing the birth date or being told the birth dates of anybody involved. So, not told their birth dates, not formally making the chart, knowing it all in his mind, discovering a, a particular aspect of the chart that just happened to nullify everything that the astrologers had correctly seen, uh, he ends up putting two people together. I mean, you know, there's nobody else doing that on this planet that I've ever heard of, doing any kind of work like that, and that's just... That's just what he does before lunch, or what he does uh, after dinner, or does in the evening. It's just one, one of the many <laughs> um, kind of um, remarkable, amazing uh, acts of service. All about service. All about service. And so the couple married, and that was that. Going on. A long-standing... Just a second. A long-standing devotee from the Mangalore days was a woman whose ill-tempered husband never allowed her to handle any family financial matters. In fact, she had never dared to ask him for money. Then, one day, following their recent move to Bombay, the wife asked her husband for some rupees. He demanded to know why. She replied that she wanted to visit nearby Ganeshpuri, and he quipped, And what will you achieve by going there? Seconds later, he literally threw a five-rupee note at her. Normally, she would never have touched money so humiliatingly offered, but, determined to see Nichinanda, she picked up the note and departed at once. Reaching the old ashram, at a little past noon, 
she found the devotees restless and the atmosphere tense. The master had not taken his afternoon meal, and as a result, no one had eaten. They told her that when he was approached earlier about his food, Nichinanda had become very upset and sent the questioner away. The devotees implored the woman to speak to him, and she approached the small room where he sat across from the Krishna temple. Seeing her, the master visibly relaxed and asked, Well, he hasn't changed yet. About her husband, perhaps. His faithful devotee replied, I don't know whether people ever change their inborn habits, but I have brought some food for you. Will you eat now? And he did. It's very interesting. Um, he was somehow involved himself in the um, energy dynamics, uh, the relation between this woman and her husband, and um, his fasting or not eating. And maybe he was a little irritable, even. He had become very upset and sent the question her way. Upset, very upset. What do you mean? He was freaking out? Frightened? No, maybe irritable. Uh, akin to how her husband had been for decades. His inborn habit of uh, ill temper, ill-tempered mind. So maybe Nijananda took it on or vibrated in harmony with it. And his fasting or not eating... Uh, was associated with waiting for her. Of course, he knew she was coming, right? And he knew she'd be bringing food. And he knew that that was related to um, some transformation process for the husband. So, he did that too. And then he ate. Final paragraph in this chapter. Late one evening in 1955, Nityananda asked his attendants to count the money in the Krishna temple donation box when told the amount, he asked them to remove all but a quarter of it. The next morning, worshippers found the box broken and the money stolen. When informed, the master nodded. Yes. He said that on the previous night, he had noticed a starving man silently praying for enough money in the temple box to feed him, and so Nichinanda obliged him with an adequate amount. <clears throat> Meaning he read the mind of that person who was in the temple um, starving or really hungry, praying to have money for food, Nichinanda took three quarters and left a quarter for him. The three quarters he took was for the temple, presumably. So we heard this story before in one of the earlier readings. Um, everything he's doing is service to other, right? <laughs> Seems uh, endless. Now... Um, we're in a chapter, next chapter, the new ashram at Kailas, 1956-1961. We're getting close to the end of his um, incarnation. And this other ashram is not in some other place. It's really nearby. <laughs> it's in Ganeshpuri too. So these are just ways of talking about different structures. Going on, in 1956, a new ashram at Ganeshpuri was inaugurated and named Kailas after the Himalayan mountain home of Shiva, or attributed to be the home of Shiva, Mount Kailas. Here, Nityananda lived for five more years until two weeks before his Mahasamadhi in August 1961. 
changes accompanied the new living situation. The master's devotee attendants now monitored access to his private quarters and put darshan on a schedule. <clears throat> Visitors wishing to see Nityananda at other times were forced to make special arrangements. This is what happens um, when more when when uh, a great a great worker does great work that becomes known widely to a great number of people. They all stream in, and then he loses his freedom or his privacy. He loses some degree of a physical freedom or autonomy, it seems to me, because um, he's given his physical time so significantly to the mass of people who want help. This is why it's really problematic to be a miracle worker in this world. Yeshua had the same problem, getting mobbed and massed by people who just want to take from you. They need help, yeah, but um, there is a certain attitude that one in need of help needs to appreciate, to receive the help that will remove the problem. And without that attitude, um, commonly help won't come, because what first needs to be addressed or helped is a wrong attitude, or a harmful attitude, an unsuitable, obstructive attitude, a distorted attitude that um, really does prevent reception of help. So anyway, <clears throat> he became more busy and a new ashram was inaugurated, which just means another building nearby. And the living situation became more structured and um, he became more protected by um, closer devotees or attendants going on. Early one evening, Nityananda sat in the middle of the inner platform with a pile of pillows at his left. Before him, a window revealed steps leading to the terrace. Suddenly, the young head of an important monastery in Udipi, from the south, appeared at the entrance. He was accompanied by a number of followers, one of whom announced to Nichinanda's seated devotees that their swami required a mat to sit on, meaning <clears throat> they came with their teacher, that devotees watched the master for a clue as to how to proceed, but he continued to gaze out the window without acknowledging the visitor in any way. Finally, the Swami respectfully pushed the pillows against the wall and seated himself on the platform's edge. He then addressed Nityananda in Kanarese, the language of Kanara. <coughs> He's basically challenging him. They said, Why do they call you God? <laughs> he asked. Looking to his left, the master replied, Everyone is a god, including yourself and those sitting here. But they call you in—they call you an incarnation, insisted the young man. Nichinanda answered, Does an incarnate ever make such a pronouncement? <clears throat> Does a yani ever project himself as enlightened? Meaning an incarnate manifestation of Godhead makes such an announcement that that is what I am. Does a yani or a knower, one who's attained awakening or liberation on the on the path of mind transformation. Does a yani ever project himself as enlightened? And the young 
fellow said, yes, Krishna does in the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, Nichananda says, no, Vyasa does so in telling the story of the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna does not. But, the Swami argued, Krishna showed the universal form of God to Arjuna. It is recorded in the Gita. And Nityananda replies, How can the Absolute's form be seen or shown? The Master said. Vyasa, the, the scribe, Vyasa wrote it to inculcate faith among the devout. <laughs> so when you get into this sort of doctrinal debate or discussion, uh, it's very hard to uh, open the clouds again. Trying to open an intellectual debate, the youth then raised certain points mentioned in the Gita. And so these points were... Um, <clears throat> everything Nichananda says, he basically shoots down. He says, you know, why do they call you God? And he said, everyone's a God. And um, But they call you an incarnation, they call you God. And then Nichananda says, about me... <laughs> would anyone such like that ever say so of himself? Then he says, yes, they would. Uh, meaning Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. And he says, no, it's the storyteller Vyasa to inculcate faith among the devout was the one who said that Krishna was enlightened and a divine incarnate manifestation of God and that he showed the universal form of God uh, in the story. And Nityananda saying, it's done by Vyasa, not by Krishna. And then the youth wants to argue even more. <clears throat> and for the person who does that, they don't understand that um, you can't have everything you want, you know. <laughs> and and the world is not um, existing for your exploitation or util for your ut utilization. The world is not here for you to manipulate, or at least other people are not. And if you want something, you have to make the foundations clear um, and respectful um, before you can even ask for what you want to take. And so people think that, again, um, they don't know the difference between giving and taking. There's a, there's a bit of confusion commonly. Trying to open an intellectual debate, the youth then raise certain points mentioned in the Gita. However, always impatient of such dry discussions, Nichinanda waved him aside, saying, What is in the Gita? From beginning to end, it is simply advice to renounce, 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 which is um, vairagya, to renounce worldliness and its inherent desires, which includes the worldly desire to win an argument or debate or even confirm oneself as knowing intellectually. Those are worldly desires and the sphere of mind. Considerably moved, the Swami rose, he got it, and thanked Nichinanda for his darshan. But when he left, two of his followers stayed behind. The master shrugged and said, When there is yoga, there will be darshan. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, hard to say. Um... He could be, um, when there is yoga, means when there is the uh, uh, successful achievement of the goals of yoga. When yoga has achieved its rightful end, which is um, awakening, 
or release and vision of release, but also the yoga as the term yog or yoke or a binding, uh, an, a, a spiritual praxis binding, a binding to spiritual practice, um, binding the mind to virtue or samadhi, um, to you know move towards awakening and release. Uh, maybe he's saying that that's what happened and that's why they didn't leave. Um, and there will be darshan, meaning you're still here um, for this audience because there was some successful spiritual binding or yoke or yoke, yoking um, by the followers who listened to his teaching to their teacher, um, who was a young fellow who um, got the point that he needs to renounce his mind, his attachment to mental activity. A week later, the Master mentioned his young visitor. He hinted that in a previous incarnation, the Swami had been the elderly priest from Udipi, who, recognizing the then youthful Nityananda's divine presence, had ordered the villagers not to harass him. This was from a very early time in the story of his life. This past connection had brought him to Ganeshpuri, and Nichinanda foresaw a bright future for him. So there was a karmic link uh, at the time, probably <clears throat> in the 1920s, right? The teens and 20s, when Nichinanda's in his 20s. Now we're talking in the 50s, 30 years prior. Um, this young man is the reborn priest or um, elderly priest from Udipi who protected Nityananda when he was being hassled by some of the ruffians in the town who um, thought that they could just play with him and then died and reborn and then had the karmic link to come to him and get the point and go beyond intellectual attachment or fascination with samskara. On another occasion, a small band of renunciates came and stood before him as he rested on the inner platform of his room. Uh, Nityananda nodded to them from his sleeping posture, and they left without a word. <laughs> Telepathic. When some of the devotees present expressed their surprise at not recognizing the renunciates, meaning uh, the devotees thinking that Nityananda didn't recognize them, when actually it seems he did, the master said, Devotees did not just reside in Ganeshpuri. He said some lived in jungles, some in cities, and others in foreign lands. <laughs> and that's all he said. And whether they asked him or not further, we don't know. But I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. Um, those you know, great teachers beyond us um, don't always explain everything as much as you want. It's again... Um, humility or respectfulness um, or the attitude we have seeking to take um, is very important to um, be sensitive to and it's just not going to happen <clears throat> that even a great teacher who seems to have no selfishness um, will not explain everything to everyone's satisfaction and that's that and if you don't like it, leave. <laughs> Why not? Just leave. It's like, you don't like what's going on, find someone you like. 
or go your own way. But um, many things he didn't explain. And so here he seems to be saying that, uh, don't you devotees living with me think that you're the only ones who know me and are um, with me? Uh, there are many who you've never seen and never come here physically, but they're um, they're in our community or they're with me too. And so this small band of renunciates, <clears throat> uh, all they needed was a nod, um, a recognition that he knows them and they know him and we're together and um, he will help them. That's exactly, many teachers really appreciate that, that you don't want to take from them because all these other people want to keep taking from him. And so, it's an interesting matter. It doesn't mean don't speak, it means don't be greedy. <laughs> Mrs. Kaikini of Dadar was a faithful follower of a great scholar who held audiences spellbound during his brilliant lectures on Janeshwar's famous translation of the Bhagavad Gita. So, <clears throat> there's Mrs. Kaikini. She's a follower of a scholar. This scholar specializes in a particular translation of the Bhagavad Gita. And he was a brilliant lecturer on that translation of the Bhagavad Gita that this follower... Uh, was uh, associated with. So this woman, Kaikini, each year she was among those who accompanied him to Pandarpur on an annu annual pilgrimage known as Wari. Because Mrs. Muktabai occasionally attended these lectures, she became friends with Mrs. Kaikini and eventually invited her to Ganeshpuri. However, Mrs. Kaikini demurred, meaning said no, saying that it did not sound like an atmosphere she would enjoy. She admitted hearing that Ichinanda was taciturn, quiet, gave no meaningful talks, and often rebuked visitors. He's a real kick-ass fellow and doesn't talk much. I don't like that. Very reasonable. <clears throat> and so she didn't, um, because she thought um, there is no, there's nothing of what I value to be obtained there. Sometime later, just before that annual Wari, which is this pilgrimage in which um, presumably lectures, uh, very high-end high lectures on the Bhagavad Gita would be presented, which are very, very inspirational, actually. Sometime later, just before the annual Wari, Mrs. Kaikini missed one of her scholar's regular lectures, Instead, she went to a talk by a rival who, new on the scene, was beginning to attract a following. It's the, <laughs> the war of the panditas. As fate would have it, her scholar-teacher had both noticed Mrs. Kaikini's absence and heard of her attendance at the other lecture. He angrily proclaimed that she was never again welcome in his presence or at the wadi. So... He's a very fine scholar, teacher, speaker, and uh, couldn't accept that she went to a rival's presentation. When Mrs. Kaikini heard this, she was deeply shocked to be punished so severely for what she considered a minor transgression was more than she could bear. Friends feared for her mental balance 
And Mrs. Muktabai again asked her to come to Ganeshpuri. This time, Mrs. Kaikini agreed. This is called shattering armor, or at least shattering uh, illusory belief or a, be- a false belief in her, her teacher's sanctity and love or goodness, where he demonstrated angry rejection of her for a completely um, pride-based reason. Uh, you can't come to me if you dare go to another, even to listen. If you even think that there's any value in anyone else's presentation, then you uh, don't deserve to be with me. Go and and never come back. And she had gotten emotional security and stability from her idealization of him and uh, listening to him, which was probably quite interesting and inspirational. Bhagavad Gita is great. Um, but she didn't see him clearly and um, <laughs> got a rude awakening. So then she agreed when Mrs. Muktabai, one of these, um, one of the devotees from the south from the old days, encouraged her to come. Their party arrived to find Nichinanda sitting on his bench. When Mrs. Muktabai told him what had happened to her friend, he responded with the character with characteristic brevity. Quote, in divine wisdom, in yana, how can there be beda? <laughs> in yana, how can there be beda? That's it. <laughs> he doesn't waste his time or breath too much. <clears throat> so, um, that's, what is he saying? <laughs> in in uh, the wisdom of Bhagavad Gita, or given that Bhagavad Gita is divine wisdom, not different from his, why do you come here when you already had divine wisdom from that Bhagavad Gita? Uh, In any case, the two young women, I guess at that time, took this to mean that if Mrs. Kaikini was truly listening to the Saint Janeshwar, would it matter which lecture she was at? Hmm. Then the master pointed to the ground and shouted, Besides... This is Pandarpur. There is no need to go in Wari. He repeated this, and as he did, Mrs. Kaikini's relief was immediate, and she returned home calmed and at peace. Meaning, uh, what you're looking for is here or everywhere. There's no need to keep looking around for different teachers and different presentations of Yana or Divine Wisdom or Truth. Uh, it's like you don't need to keep channeling. <laughs> don't you have enough information already? Can't you go deeper in what you've already received from late six density? Why would you want to keep channeling more? Hmm? The following year, as the month for the Wari approached, meaning that um, pilgrimage associated with special series of lectures on Bhagavad Gita, the following year, so you can see how things are much more complicated as time goes on or towards the end of the life. <clears throat> the following year, as the month for the Wari approached, her anxiety returned, and she decided to go to Pandarpur on her own. But when she started to pack, she felt ill, or fell ill. By the time she was well enough to travel, it was too late. The following year followed a similar pattern. Again, as she began to pack, she became ill. Only then did she recognize the significance of Nichinanda's words. 
and from that moment she no longer felt compelled to attend the wari. Some years later she suddenly weakened and took to her bed. Stopping her son from rushing for a doctor, she said, Please don't. I see Nichinanda standing there, and he has come to take me. Within minutes, she passed away. How about that? <clears throat> Very heavy. And um, she was not um, a long-term devotee. She was not in some inner circle. But um, he brought her a vision of himself uh, before she left the physical body. I think that's great compassion. Narayan Shetty, popularly called Sandow Shetty, was a familiar figure, figure in Ganeshpuri in the last ten years of Nityananda's life, the fifties. He was a big, gregarious man, looked up to in the ashram, <clears throat> though he sometimes went too far acting the buffoon. Now it happened that he was quite fond of fruit, especially those brought as offerings. Often he would seek the master's permission with silent gestures and then slyly slip the best ones aside for himself, pieces of fruit. When a few devotees objected to such audacity, Nityananda retorted, Never mind, his desires are simple, let him have the fruit. <laughs> uh, so again, this is Sandow Shetty or Narayan Shetty. Some years after the master's passing, meaning in the 60s, Sandow was hospitalized following surgery. Captain Hatengi, going to visit his friend, the, Mr. Sandow, found him semi-conscious and speaking as if to Nityananda. Remember, master, that you promised me a place, he muttered. Don't forget. And to the shock of the doctors who expected a full recovery, he died. <clears throat> and so again, Nichinanda appearing to devotees or those who love him um, at their moment of leaving the body. Once a famous singer visited Ganeshpuri at the invitation of a devotee, while fans and critics alike considered the man outstanding in his field, they agreed that he was also a little arrogant. Upon entering the ashram to perform, the man found a group of tribal people seated around the master reclining on his bench as usual. Mud floor, an uncultured audience, and Nityananda's apparent indifference instantly upset the artist, the singer, who decided his talents were wasted on this gathering. Why should I sing for these lowly folks? Without a word, he turned and went to his room. I guess he had a room there. <clears throat> Overhearing, I'm sorry, went to his room. Later that evening, a woman from a distinguished school of music arrived and performed for over an hour. Overhearing her, the disgruntled artist decided that he would perform the next day. To his dismay, however, that morning he could not utter a single note. He fearfully approached Nichinanda, who said, Sing? Why not? God gave you the voice. Sing his praises. Why should you care who hears and who does not? <clears throat> and so, <laughs> uh, this singer, 
was presumably, possibly, super attached to uh, admiration, adulation, audiences listening and appreciating what he's doing and praising him. And if the audience doesn't seem to be the audience that he wants to have make that reaction, then he doesn't sing. <clears throat> and um, he couldn't utter a single note. Um, I guess, obviously, Nityananda was responsible for that. Is that harm? Well, I think it depends on the outcome. And um, he was shut down. Um, maybe it's a quickening of karmic return for his arrogance. A quickening, quickening and concentration into that symptom or that experience of um, laryngitis or being unable to speak or sing, <clears throat> a condensation, concentration, quickening, karmic return for his arrogance and his attachment to fame and praise and honor. Um, and Nityananda puts him back to, back to center and sort of says, well, you got your voice from God, from source. Um, so sing about him. And why do you care who hears and who doesn't hear? <clears throat> Which is, why do you care if you're famous and you get praise and honor? Why? Is that so important? Is it, is it really important what humans think of you? It's important what truth is. <laughs> it's important what truth is. Please note, this is a Hatengi's note, please note that Indian music is an ancient science intended to enhance the individual's communion with the infinite, Fame and wealth are incidental to its spiritual aspect. For this reason, most songs relate in some way to reuniting the individual with the Supreme. <clears throat> Which is true. Um, Indian classical music is really um, high or um, um, subtle sophisticated, metaphysically, spiritually sophisticated, both. Going on, <clears throat> a year or two after K.S. Lula began visiting Ganesh Puri, Nityananda took him aside. He told the attorney to go to Kangad and then to uh, Dharmashtala to, to receive darshan at the famous Manjunata temple. He also told him to travel by air. <clears throat> this was the devotee's first trip to that part of the country, and he planned it with care. So this is a very specific story about um, one devotee who's an attorney seeking to get darshan. He's an attorney. He planned the trip with care. He first proceeded to Kanangad and from there to Mangalore. He then intended take an, to take an early taxi to Dharmashtal and return to Mangalore, in time for his 11.30 a.m. flight to Bombay. Accordingly, he rose, procured a taxi, and, a and arrived at Dharmashtal at 6 in the morning. But when he tried to enter the Jain shrine for Darshan, he was stopped. The attendant priest informed him that he could receive Darshan only after first participating in the ritual puja, which would occur at noon. Lula explained his predicament, but the priest was adamant, <clears throat> explaining that tradition required this protocol of even the highest in the land, meaning first ritual puja, then darshan. However, Lula persisted and was finally taken before the hereditary head of the temple, who simply repeated the temple rules, meaning you better do the puja first. 
Nichananda's devotee in turn repeated his plea, saying, Bhagwan sent me for Lord Manjunata's darshan, but my return flight is at 11.30. If you cannot help me, I will go back and explain to Bhagwan why I did not receive darshan. <laughs> Intrigued, <clears throat> Indians are really like that. They, they're just wound in multiple directions continually. Intrigued, the gentleman asked for who, to whom he referred. When Lula said Nityananda of Ganeshpuri, the priest was told to let him enter the temple at once. <clears throat> Lula quickly returned to Ganeshpuri to tell his tale. To his surprise, however, <clears throat> the devotees already knew of the successful pilgrimage. He then learned that at the exact moment of his entry into the Jain temple in Dharmashtal, the master had smiled in Ganeshpuri, announcing, Lula is having darshan of Manjunata. <clears throat> so Nityananda is uh, observing the process and uh, making change um, magically at distance. This incident is unusual because Nityananda seldom urged participation in traditional ritual or public worship, like a darshan or a puja. Instead, he often said that it often said that for it to lead to liberation. Devotion should not be demonstrative, but practiced secretly. Gupta Bhakti Mukti. <laughs> Gupta Bhakti Mukti. Gupta, I think, is secret or silent or inner bhakti, worship, devotion, mukti, liberation. So, uh, inner, silent uh, devotion, worship leads to or is of liberation release. It's nice to be able to talk so briefly. Gupta Bhakti Bhukti. Once a devotee spoke of her spiritual experiences to friends in Bombay <clears throat> and implied that she was developing rapidly. On her next visit to Ganeshpuri, the master asked, What do you do when you season food? Don't you cover it for a time and let it simmer? This, he explained, allows the flavor to permeate the dish rather than escape into the air. Similarly, spiritual experiences should be kept private until one has evolved enough to speak of them without arousing the ego. Now, that's Hatengi's terminology or phrasing, arousing the ego. Why don't we just say feeding conceit and arrogance and pride and vanity? And, uh, yeah... Um, uh, Yeshua said something like you should uh, pray in secret or in private that devotion and um, attainment is for your eyes only you and God you and the source you and source and um, being getting public viewing seeking others to see why it's the same kind of thing with the singer. Why do you need people to listen to you? Why the artist? Why do you need people to like your work? Uh, the teacher, why do you need many followers? Why do you need any followers? If you like to teach, teach. If you like to talk, talk. If many come, fine. If nobody comes, fine. But, I mean, attachment to others' opinion or attachment to... Uh, 
publicly acclaimed demonstration is a problem. And likewise, in terms of one's experiences, um, one should, some of them, many of them, actually should always be kept private, because really, nearly no one ought to be hearing um, only ones of uh, similar um, experience, actually. A cooking analogy is not surprising, considering Nichinanda's knowledge of the subject. He sometimes instructed a cook on how to grind the masala spices and what spices to use. It was customary for his devotees in Ganeshpuri to each prepare a dish as a daily offering to him, and Nichinanda would always know if an ingredient was missing. He probably didn't even eat it. Or make suggestions about blending spices or some aspect of its preparation. He once told a devotee that as a person becomes more spiritually evolved, he or she would instinctively be able to cook well and combine ingredients in the right proportions without having to measure them. That's absolutely true. Other people know that too. Cooks have said that. Absolutely. And if a person cooks really poorly, it it's, um, it's a mm, lack of proportionality in mind. It's a lack of the development of balance and symmetry and harmony in mind. And so more spiritually evolved equals more unblocked lower triad, less psychodynamic conflict and old wounding unhealed. Um, more developed is more green blue indigo, more harmony balance in uh, yin yang or love wisdom or feeling, thinking, or receiving, giving, or being, doing. Um, all that is harmonized much, then naturally cooking gets better. And um, that's interesting. Um, Taiwan is a place with a lot of good food. Hmm, does that mean they're more spiritually evolved? Hmm, maybe. Some. Somehow. Anyway... Final paragraph for this chapter for today, and I see the time is over. Nichinanda's personal knowledge of the culinary art was legendary. G. L. Rao recalls that the master once prepared a superb festival dinner for him, serving Rao most of the food. Yes, I can imagine his curry was uh, <laughs> quite amazing. Serving Rao most of the food. He saved a little for himself on a sheet of newspaper. This he mixed with some curry, ate a few bites while still standing, and then threw away the paper. Captain Hatengi had a similar experience in 1945 when Nichinanda prepared some rice in a regional potato dish peculiar to his devotee's native region, probably in the south somewhere, probably with a lot of cumin. Carry cumin and fenugreek carrying it to the guest room <clears throat> he handed it to him I think meaning Nichinanda prepared it and handed it to that devotee directly moving a discreet distance away the self-conscious devotee began to eat as the master watched though delicious it was an enormous portion and only after some time did Nichinanda suggest that he could stop eating <laughs> He didn't. He, he didn't. He felt he should just keep eating because my teacher is watching, and he made it for me. I can't refuse it. 
Another year passed until one day, as they sat together, the master remarked, It is good to know how to cook. Captain Hatengi took it as a casual utterance until thirty years later he found himself forced to learn the elements of cooking. <laughs> so, <clears throat> a great teacher um, works multi-level activity service simultaneously. Um, and so, not only is he making a statement, it's good to know how to cook, <laughs> maybe he enjoys it. Ho ho. And um, it is good. And then also later, uh, 30 years later, it was found by Captain Hatengi, who heard that, that he better learn to, lo better learn to cook. So, <laughs> that's some nice teaching there, too. That's it for today. No more commentary. Next time, we'll look at the new ashram at Kailash. Again, this sort of um, additional structure and Ganeshpuri area. 1950-1961, and then uh, the chapter after that, uh, which is about Nityananda's passing, the beginning, first chapter of the passing. So we're really getting to the end, unfortunately. <clears throat> um, but is there an end? Um, there's a physical end. Um, and what else? What is not of the physical, doesn't end. So, in any case, I hope this was helpful and interesting. Uh, thank you to all involved. Please take good care of yourself, as always. See you next time, and good night.